Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, chefs. This is Chef's PSA podcast. I'm your host, Andre Natera. On today's episode, we're going to get into no matter how well you make something, there's another chef out there that thinks you're wrong. Stay tuned. This episode of Chef's PSA is sponsored by JNR Grills and Smokers. I used JNR Smokers and Grills for over five years as a chef, and I can tell you there's a huge difference between cooking over live fire or smoking with wood than using gas. There's only one way to get that real wood flavor, and now they've just added the JNR Vault Holding Cabinet. It'll be the last holding cabinet you'll ever need. It's built with 14 gauge stainless steel interior, it's ultra durable, it has precise electronic temperature control. It's going to outlast all those other holding cabinets that you've used and always break down. They build everything in Texas and ship to all 50 states and over 50 countries. And right now, if you order before December 31st, 2023, you're going to receive 25% off plus free shipping. JNR will stand with you. They've always stood with me. Go to jrmanufacturing.com forward slash vault. So before we get into it, let's give you a brief update. I'm continuing to write this book, Bad Cooks Everywhere. I, I am unsure that it'll be out before Christmas. Most likely it'll be out just after Christmas and for sure in the early part of January. It's coming together. Formatting's done. Images are in, unless I change some things a little bit. But it still needs some refinement on the story, so I'm working on that. But it's coming together. It will be out soon. I know a lot of you have been asking about it, so there's your quick update. If you want to support the show, you know what to do. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit the thumbs up, subscribe like share if you're watching on spotify or listening on spotify make sure you leave five stars nothing less than five stars it's a five-star podcast obviously make sure you hit the subscribe button if you want to get some of my books you could go to chefspsa.com forward slash books or chefspsa.com and you get all the books that i've already written culinary leadership fundamentals line cook survival manual bad sue good chef kitchen art of war and how not to be the biggest idiot in the kitchen as well as some free ebooks, which include 100 basic recipes. The 100 basic recipe ebook that's free includes everything from like pasta dough, gnocchi dough, some pastry basics like pastry cream, a couple of different sauces like mole, salsa verde, things like that. It's free. You can download it. It's an ebook. There's also a critical path on opening up a restaurant. So if you plan on opening up a restaurant, you should at least get that so you know where to start. A guide to food cost mastery. So if you're in an executive chef position, or a cook that's looking to understand food cost more and no one's teaching you, well, that's why I'm here for. It's free. It's a good resource for you. As well as a free culinary dictionary so you can learn all the slang, all the colloquial terms that we use in the kitchen, things that you may or may not know, including some things that I've put in there like a Halloween ninja or kitchen karate. Go check all those out. Chefspsa.com is where you can find out more as well as some merch, including this hat, this Chef's PSA t-shirt, Everything is going to be in the show notes on whatever platform you're listening on. So link to everything as well as go follow me on all social media channels. I'm now on Facebook, X, TikTok, 
Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, everywhere. I'm everywhere, literally, figuratively. Anyway, we digress. I put up a poll the other day on Instagram, and I talked a little bit about this on last week's episode about this four-day work model that a lot of restaurants are going to. And I found the results interesting, so I'm going to share them with you. Of the people that I polled, if they work in a four-day-a-week kitchen, only 18% say they do work in that type of environment. So that's 18% of people that are following me on, on Chef's PSA Instagram say that they work in a four-day-a-week kitchen. Now, the thing that I need to understand, is it a 32-hour job, so four eight-hour shifts, or is it a 40-hour job, four 10-hour shifts, or four 12-hour shifts? And that part is a little bit unclear. So some of the chef friends that I've spoken to said they run four eight-hour shifts, and other friends I've talked to says it's four 10-hour shifts. Well, according to the poll, of those that did, 59% said it was a 40-hour-a-week job, and only 6% said they were at 32 hours a week, with the rest being on a flexible schedule, meaning they could get more hours if they want them, which is interesting. The next question is, would you want to work in a four-day-a-week type kitchen schedule? Interesting, 70% of the people that responded said yes. 70% of the people want to be in that type of kitchen. And when I asked for the people that do work in that type of kitchen, are you happier? Do you like your schedule more? 70% of them said yes, 22% of them said no difference. And this is assuming that everyone that's answering is truly in that type of kitchen or they're just trying to skew the numbers. Nonetheless, I found the results interesting and I think it's something that chefs and restaurants need to be thinking about. I don't wanna do a full podcast on it yet because I don't understand it well enough. Initially, I see some challenges with it and that is how do you make the schedule work? So you have to have a little bit more staff on hand to cover the amount of shifts that are needed. If you're open seven days a week, you need seven shifts per service, assuming you're doing just one service, but are you doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Is there multiple services? Do you have prep positions? So you gotta look at the amount of shifts that you need, and then you gotta divide that by the number of shifts per person, and that'll give you the amount of people that you need. So most likely you're going to need, I mean, not even most likely, you're going to need more people on your team to be able to pull off the four day work week. Now, if you're in a place that's offering benefits, I could see why a lot of people might be reluctant to do that because you have what's called FTEs, full-time employees, and a lot of companies that have FTEs, full-time employees, there's a certain amount of money that goes into paying for every FTE. So that might be benefits, insurance, whatever benefits are added, they have to cover that for having the additional staff. So the question is, does the company wanna cover that? That's up to them. But on the flip side, you end up with employees that are happier. So the chefs that I've spoken to said it increases retention. So they've had much less turnover since they've gone to the four day work week. And for those people that want to make more money, because that's the whole thing is like, if you're only working 32 hours, well, then you might need to supplement it with another job. I don't know. Cost of living is going up. There's inflation. So do you need now two jobs at 32 hours a week? Does it really solve anything? I don't know. But if you're in a position where you're getting 40 hours at four days a week, to me, that seems like the sweet spot. So from a chef manager owner perspective, you would want to move to that model because you will decrease turnover. You'll increase retention. You'll increase employee morale. You'll have happier cooks. Happy cooks make good food. So that seems like a good positive. On the opposite side is what happens when the real world kicks in and you don't have enough bodies to execute that? 
do you go from a four day work week to now everyone's back on six? And then now people are disgruntled because you took something away from them. And then you run the risk of having a mass exodus of people quitting and wanting to leave to go work at other places. I was messaging with someone in the DMs and they were saying that they were working in a place that did this, but the problem that they had is there just wasn't enough cooks. They're talking about a massive cook shortage. So as difficult as it is right now to staff your kitchen, if you need even more bodies to go to the four day work week, it makes it that much more difficult. It's a lot of food for thought. I'm not sure what the right answer is. I'm going to continue the conversation with chef friends that I have just to understand this better. And maybe I will do a full podcast on it. But anyway, that's not what today's topic. Today's topic is no matter how well you do something, another chef thinks you're wrong. So I have a post that I've, I've put that up as a post on Chef's PSA, no matter how well you do something, another chef thinks you're wrong. And the reason I do that is because you could make something perfectly and another chef is going to come to you and say, well, I would do it this way. They have their own opinions on how they would do it. They think you're doing it wrong because their chef showed them, their chef chef showed them, culinary school showed them, their last job showed them. They saw something on social media. Someone told them something different. They read a book. There's an infinite number of reasons why they think you're wrong, even though you make something extremely well. And it might work extremely well in your restaurant, in your environment, for your customers. People will tell you it's great, but there's this one person that's always been a hater in the background. The reason I wanted to do this podcast specifically on this is I saw an Instagram video the other day, a reel, and there was this great chef, one Michelin star chef, and he was doing a demo. He was cooking fish, had brown butter and capers and lemon segments and it looked beautiful it was a beautiful cook on the fish he did it his way the way that works in his restaurant he's showing an audience how to do it and i went and i said looks beautiful chef i love seeing the classics and then i got lost in the comments and i couldn't believe how many chefs and cooks were commenting how he was frying the fish incorrectly how he used a cake tester and he should use a thermometer how he should be ashamed of the way he was cooking the fish how that wasn't a true emulsification on the sauce and just people just telling him how he's wrong. Now, the reason it bothered me so much is because this chef, he's clearly a good chef. He's got one Michelin star. He knows what the fuck he's doing. Most of the people that are commenting to him are not even on his level, but have opinions. They're, they aren't, they aren't fit to shine this man's shoes yet. They want to tell him how he can't cook. I would say, show me your Michelin star. Oh, oh you don't have one. Okay. Well then maybe I know what the hell I'm doing. Right. I just find it kind of disrespectful how all these people want to attack someone who's trying to demonstrate skill, teach people, right? And he even responded to the comment about the cake tester. He said, I do know how to tell fish is done without the cake tester, but I'm showing this technique for the people that don't know, which is obviously very accurate. And a lot of people often ask me why I don't do cooking videos. And I'll explain this right now. Number one, because Chef's PSA is a podcast, right? So that, that's why I don't do cooking videos. I don't have a studio set up to do cooking videos. I'm not in a professional kitchen anymore, so I don't have access to kitchen equipment to do this. Not only that, but the amount of resources that it takes to film these cooking videos when you're not in a kitchen, it's a lot. You need cameras, you need lighting, you need to buy the food, you need to wash the dishes. All this effort goes into that cooking video, and then you have to deal with people saying, oh, you, you used a cake tester. That's not a true emulsification. Why? So why am I going to go through the trouble of doing this for someone who's not going to appreciate it? Like there's a lot of chefs out there that do it and do it well. And that's their thing. It's not my thing. I, I really don't see the upside on the investment of doing these cooking videos. I mean, I'm, I, I should probably correct myself. I will do them on occasion, but it's not what I do. If I'm in a kitchen 
and the time is right and the resources there, I'll do it. But I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to do that every day. It's not what I do. But reading those comments reminded me that every chef out there is opinionated about what they do. You cut fish one way, they're going to tell you you're wrong because they learned it a different way. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You make a sauce a certain way, they're going to tell you you're wrong because they make it another way. Someone asked me on my Q&A the other day, how do you make your veal stock? And I was reluctant to answer. And the reason was because I know no matter what I say, someone's going to tell me how they make theirs and how I'm wrong. And honestly, I, I don't care. They weren't asking you. They were asking me how I make mine. And how I make mine, shit, now I'm going to, now I'm going to tell you, is I use a mixture of veal bones and beef bones. And the reason I would use a mixture, so again, executive chef trying to make good financial decisions, the veal bones are more expensive than the beef bones. So I would cut the cost down by incorporating a little bit of beef bones with the veal bones. I'd also put oxtail because I like the flavor of the oxtail. Sometimes I would put chicken feet due to the amount of collagen that they have. My mirepoix isn't always the standard classic ratio of 50% onion, 25% carrot, 25% celery. I sometimes would go a little bit higher on the celery and a little less on the carrot because I don't like the sweetness always that the carrot brings and I like the flavor of celery. So that's just me. Now, there's someone watching saying, you know, I don't do my mirepoix like that. They're going to say it's always 50, 25, 25. Or they're going to say I only do onions. Or they're going to say, you know, you got to put leeks and turnips or whatever, right? And that's fine. Do whatever you want. It does not affect me. You could make your stock however you choose. And I'm not going to judge you for it. But chefs are judgy people. They'll judge everyone on how they make whatever recipe. They're like, I make my bolognese this way. Oh, really? You don't put it through the grinder? I always grind mine. I always grind my mirepoix through the grinder before I make my bolognese. Oh, really? You don't hand chop yours? You're supposed to hand chop it. That's the way my grandmother did it. And then someone's going to say, that's not true Alfredo. True Alfredo doesn't have any cream in it. And true Alfredo doesn't have chicken in it. Doesn't matter what you say. They're always going to say that, there's, that you're wrong as if you're not allowed to express yourself through food. You have to color within the lines of other chefs' opinions, which is the most ridiculous thing. It's the most constraining thing as a chef to conform your ideas to tradition because it prevents innovation. Now, I'm not saying that tradition doesn't have its place because I think in order to break the rules, you have to understand them first. You have to know how to make the classics before you could improvise on them. So you could see where there's opportunity to put your signature on it for your own palate preferences. You could plate something beautifully a certain way and someone's going to say your food is dated and people don't plate like that anymore while the guest is going to come in and say it's beautiful and stunning, right? The whole thing is really subjective. But the fact that we codified a lot of things in culinary based on 
the origin of the dish or the creator of the dish, it doesn't allow for deviation. And this is sometimes a problem with the vocabulary that we use. So if we use a certain word, then a lot of people have to hold you to that, right? So years ago, I had a Bordelais sauce on the menu and uh, another chef friend of mine called me out and says, where's the bone marrow? It's like, well, I didn't have bone marrow in the Bordelais. Now, do I know that Bordelais gets bone marrow? Yes, I know that. But I, I just didn't feel like messing around with calling it something else. It's like, it's a, it's a brown sauce. I'm going to call it Bordelais. Am I going to go to culinary jail? Does the person that called me out for not having bone marrow think I didn't know that? And now they feel superior because they brought something to my attention, which I already knew. Do I need to explain to them my logic? I'm telling you, you could make something absolutely perfect. And another chef is going to come around and tell you why you're wrong. And they're going to feel this sense of moral superiority to explain to you the correct method. It's ridiculous. When people do that, I just laugh because it's like, well, can you make it? Can you make it? Then it doesn't matter. You call it whatever you want. You call it a pancake and it could be a steak, but if it's the best steak I've ever had, I'm going to call it a pancake too. I don't care what you call it. The end result is what matters. I put up a chef's PSA the other day and I said, some chefs would rather be right than make good food. I'm going to say that again. Some chefs would rather be right than make good food, meaning they'd rather be right that they know the right way to do things, that it, they are steeped in tradition, that it needs to be done a certain way that it has to be ground in a mortar and pestle or it has to be passed through a food mill. Or if you're going to make classic Robichon potatoes, you have to go food mill and tammy. Some people are going to say you have to bake it. No, you have to boil the potato, right? People are going to argue over the nuance of how to get to the end result. But does it matter? The shortest path to get to the most delicious result is the most efficient and is really all that matters. The guests dining in the, in the restaurant doesn't care which method you used as long as it's delicious. And if it's more delicious to boil it versus bake it or to tammy it versus not tammy it, do you think the guest is going to say, yeah, it's perfect, but sorry, you should have tammied it twice. No, they, they really don't care about that. But yet we let sometimes tradition hold us back from being efficient. How I work in the kitchen, if I have 20 people helping me versus if I have two people helping me, it's going to change differently, right? If I have an army of cooks, I know I could do more complex, more detailed food. If I have just a few people, I might have to change the menu a little bit. You have to work with the tools that you're given. A hundred years ago, they didn't have Vitamix. If they did, the recipe wouldn't read past the lobster shells through a food mill or grind them in a mortar and pestle. It wouldn't, it wouldn't say that. It would say, you know, put in the VitaPrep. So if you have access to this, then you should adapt. Another very difficult things for chefs, especially when you're new in your careers, when you're coming out, you're in your first restaurant and you have to resist the urge to say, they taught me differently in school. That's not the right way to do it. According to, you know, Escoffier or whoever, right? And you're telling the chef who's doing it and has a successful restaurant, that school who's teaching you the fundamentals in a very slow controlled environment that they are doing it wrong in the real world. And it's kind of ridiculous, right? And, and, and you know, I think it gets on my nerves so much because I used to do that a lot when I was a young cook. I would tell my chef in my, one of my first jobs, like, that's not the classic method. And then he said, it was funny because I, I did used to say this to my chef when I was young. I was like 17 or 18, still in culinary school. And the chef would do something that was against what they taught me in culinary school. And I would say, you know, the chef at school said, blah, blah, blah. And the chef said to me, your chef at school used to be my apprentice. You could tell him I said that. It's kind of the real world, right? Do it the way your chef wants you to do it. It's like that old expression. What's the right way to do it? Do it the way they want you to do it in their kitchen, period.
you might know a lot of different ways. Don't be opposed to learning new ideas. Don't be opposed to finding a new way to do something. There's a lot of different ways to do things. If you're paying attention in a kitchen and you go to a new kitchen, rather than speaking up and saying how you do it differently, why don't you learn their way? And when the time comes, you could show it that there is another way and maybe they adapt to it. Maybe they don't. And maybe you find out that there's a reason things are done a certain way. Someone is going to say, well, people shouldn't have an ego and be so sensitive to not hearing new ideas. True. They shouldn't. But I'd question where the ego is really coming from. Is it coming from the person that doesn't want to hear the new idea from someone on their first day? Or is it potentially coming? Is the ego, the insecure ego coming from the person that has to show how much they know on their first day and tell the person who's been doing it a certain way that they are wrong? Who has the big ego here? I mean, really, is it the person that doesn't want to hear it? Or is it the person who has to say it? I don't know. I'll let you guys decide. Who, who's the one with the big ego? The person that has to get it off their chest to tell them that they know something that the other person doesn't know? Or is it the person who has been doing a certain way, trial and error, probably has more experience than you, probably knows the way that you're going to tell them to do it, but has decided on a different way? I don't know. They must have the big ego, right? What's the point? The point is, is that as a chef, as a cook, as you're developing your style, first and foremost, it's important to learn the basics. Gain the fundamentals of cooking. Do not be opposed to new ideas, to new ways of thinking. New ways of thinking is just going to add more. It's important that you have a little bit of discernment when you're learning new techniques to figure out what is going to improve and what is going to detract the food that you're making. Take the best, discard what's not useful. And when people come to you and tell you that you're wrong, it's just noise, keep doing you, let your own food shine, be the innovator, be the exception to the rule. And I'll leave you with this last thought. It's the outlier and it's the exception to the rule that gets noticed when everyone starts at the same place, acts the same, and does food the exact same way, they all end up with the same result. It's the person who's willing to step outside the lines, be the exception, be creative, and do things their own way are the ones that become successful, right? So if you want to become successful in this industry or any industry, then be unique. And sometimes being unique is doing things perfectly in the tradition. So nothing wrong with tradition. Sometimes executing the most traditional proper food is beautiful in itself. Anyway, you all know what to do. If you want to support the show, make sure you leave five stars. Go to chefspsa.com. You get all the books, all the merch. Thank you all very much. See you next week. Hit the porno music.